today we're going to talk about the gospel. Sound good? We like the gospel, don't we? Yeah? And, um, uh, you know, preachers always say this, oh, how the worship kind of really kind of spoke into what I was going to say, but, you know, isn't that great to be talking about, you know, the proclamation that we're not guilty today, that what the, of what the gospel has done, what Jesus has, has done for us. So I'm feeling excited about that. I feel like the preaching's already started, and so I'm going to try and catch up. Um, as you know, we're heading into a kingdom series um, and really, you know, what is the Kingdom series about? It's about kingdom advance. It's about equipping us to advance the kingdom here in Solihull, uh, in, the, in Birmingham, in this local area, in this nation, and to the nations. And um, I don't know if you... Um, if there was, there's a prophecy by a lady called Heidi Baker about a coming revival. And, you know, you might say, well, I've heard those kind of prophecies before. But I thought that what was really interesting about this prophecy is that she said this isn't going to be a revival that's kind of focused around a kind of Wesley or a Whitfield, a, a, a one-man kind of show. This is something that's going to happen. It's going to come from God's people, an empowered people that's going to take the kingdom out uh, into the nation. And I believe that. I believe there's something happening in, uh, something happening, uh, 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 in the church today. It's, it's an empowerment for, for his people, um, that God's raising up a prophetic army of his people to go out, not waiting for one man, not waiting for a single prophet, but a prophetic army going out into the nation that we're entering a gospel season. Do you believe that? We're entering a gospel season. A new season where the gospel is going to be proclaimed and the gospel is going to advance. And that's partly why um, we're doing this uh, uh, Kingdom series. So today I want to look at a gospel story. And um, it's a story of the gospel in action. That the, the gospel, what I want to show us today is that the gospel is something that we do. It's not just something that we tell. I think often we reduce the gospel into a kind of a three-minute kind of three-minute three synopsis. You know, that old thing, you know, you've got to be able to get the gospel, say the gospel before the match burns your fingers. You know, have you ever, ever had to do that? No? If someone gives you a match, say, can you tell the gospel before the match burns down and burns your fingers? And you're like, okay, Adam and Eve, little, little, sin, little, little, little. And you're like, quick, get to Jesus. <laughs> but actually, you know, the gospel is more than, than, than a, than a, than a three-minute story. And, you know, being able to tell the gospel... Uh, is important, but actually the gospel is more than that. The gospel isn't just something we tell, it's something that we do. In fact, if you think about it, you know, the gospel, yes, in, in the, you know, you look, at, you look at Acts, you look at the apostles advancing the gospel in Acts, and you see that, yes, they, they preached the gospel, they told the gospel, sometimes they told it and they went, sometimes they stayed around for a long time in order to really model something, to really build something. In fact, the gospel was often called the way, wasn't it? The Christians, they were, they, were, they were members of the way, those that followed the way. That Actually, the gospel is more than something we tell, it's something that we live out. It's a way that we live. So in this story, we're going to see Jesus doing the gospel. We're going to see how Jesus deals with opposition, deals with fear. Um, and, I mean, I don't know about you, but kind of, that's something I can identify with, kind of the fear of wanting to step out and live the gospel Tell the gospel, do the gospel. There's a fear there. You know, read, you know, I like biographies. I'm not much of a a fiction person, but I like, I like a good biography. And you know, you read biographies of of people like Richard Wormbrandt, you know, tortured in Romania by the communist regime for years. Brother Young in China, tortured for his faith, for preaching the gospel. And I think, 
where does that kind of faith come from? Where does the ability to step out and proclaim the gospel like that in the face of such opposition, where does that come from? I have to psych myself up just to mention on a Monday that I've been to church. What did you do at the weekend? Well, I played football, I took the kids to a party, I went, went to church. I have to psych myself up to do that. And there's people there that, they're, they're, you know, we've got brothers and sisters around the world that are dying for the gospel. Where does that faith come from? Where does that passion come from? Where does that freedom from fear come from? And I think we see that in this story that we're going to look at today. So we're going to look at a story of a man in a hopeless situation who experiences gospel transformation. And we're going to look at three characteristics of the gospel that we see in this story. We're going to see how Jesus does the gospel. And we're going to see how Jesus handles opposition. So the story. John chapter 5. If you've got a Bible or an iPad, why don't you find John chapter 5. John chapter 5, verse 1. It says, Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now, there, there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, um, the paralysed. And there is, and this this pool really existed for for years. You know, scholars, archaeologists argued and said that it didn't. But about 120 years ago, somebody actually found it with with its five colonnades. And it, the reason they didn't think it existed is because it sounded too unusual to have five covered colonnades. But um, archaeologists have found it um, uh, in in 1888. Um, and it's, it's this place where all the lame and the blind and, and um, the paralysed all, have all come. For some reason, they've gathered here. Maybe they've come partly because of, you know, it's a place where they can beg. It's a place that's known. That's where the, the disabled will be. That's where people might come with food and money. And maybe there's security in numbers there. But there's something more going on here. Why have all these people gathered here? And actually, it reminded me. I used to, I used to do a, like a, a soup run with the homeless in London. And it really reminded me of this of a stop on the soup run uh, behind the Savoy. You know, the Savoy Hotel is opulent, very you know, expensive, famous hotel. And at the back of the Savoy is this kind of covered colonnade it's a, a, that runs along the whole of the back with these pillars and this, uh, this kind of overhanging uh, colonnade. And um, you used to get about 50 to 100 homeless people used to sleep there every night in boxes because it, I suppose there's kind of safety in numbers. Um, it, there's, it's a place where the tea runs and the charities knew to go. Do you know what I mean? So it kind of attracted people. Sometimes the kitchens used to give food out at the back, um, the back of the hotel. And it was a kind of gathering place for those in need. And, and, and it kind of reminded me of this, of this story. But actually, it's more than that. Actually, I remember going on, you know, on that tea run. It was an intimidating place. I remember one day going to ask a guy if he wanted a drink. We used to take hot drinks and food and clothes. And there was a guy crouching over. And I kind of said, excuse me. And as he turned around, he had a knife and he had a big roll of money. And he was like, what, what? Do you want a cup of tea? Oh, yes, please. Okay, great. It's like, it was an intimidating place to be. It was a smelly place to be. You know, people would just urinate, defecate wherever. You know, um, it smelled of homeless people who were, you know, in their, in their unwashed clothes. It, 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 was a, it was a smelly, dirty... It, was, it wasn't a pleasant place to be. And I think that's what this place was like. These co- co- covered colonnades around this pool. You had, like, this, this, this lovely pool, but then you had all of these um, poor, um, helpless people... 
It would have been smelly, dirty, and maybe even intimidating. So verse 5, it said, There was one who had been there, had been disabled for 38 years. So there's a guy, he's there, he's there, he's a paralyzed guy, and he's been, uh, he's been disabled for 38 years. And that really stru- strikes me because I'm 38, recently turned 38. I've recently turned 38 years, years old, but I'm 38 years old. So I think my entire life this guy's been paralyzed. It doesn't say whether he was born like that or whether he became, um, it doesn't say how old he is. But, you know, I was born in 1976. This guy, since 1976, has been paralysed, has been stuck, stuck in this place. Who remembers 1976? There's a few hands, yeah. There's a few hands. Who had a pair of platform shoes? You know, it was a great year for, for hits. It was, you know, hot chocolate. You sexy thing, which I think was Rob's, one of Rob's favourites, wasn't it? <laughs> Queen Bohemian Rhapsody, I think. So, yeah, you know, but you think of all that's happened since then, apart from me being born. Who didn't exist in 1976? Yeah. But you think of all that's happened since then, you know, the, you know, um, Margaret Thatcher, John Major, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, David Cameron, the Gulf War, Falklands War. Harry Potter, Star Wars didn't exist. Did you know that? Star Wars didn't exist. Can you imagine, can you imagine, Theo, a time when Star Wars didn't exist? It was two years later, yeah. So, I mean, a time when Star Wars, that's a long time ago. My point is this, that that's a long time, that's a long time to be stuck in this situation. So verse six, when Jesus saw this guy lying there, and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Which seems like a bit of a rude question. You might say, well, you know, I'm at church. I'm here and I'm at church. But do you really want to change? Do you really want to get well? Sir, the paralyzed man replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. And this is the reason all these people are here. Um, there's a verse missing, actually, from most translations because it was added in later on. And that's that there's this superstition that, that, that an angel would come and stir the water and that the first person to get into the water would be healed. So that's why, that's the reason why all these people have come and have gathered here in the hope that they would be the first one into the water, that they would be the one to be healed. And um, some later versions of the later manuscripts, so people have added in that, that verse, to, verse 4 to explain that superstition. But, um, but, I, but that's the reason. So uh, he says, I've got no one to help me into the water. So I'm here, I can see the pool, I think there may be a chance of me being healed if I can just get into the pool, but I've got no one to help me. I'm helpless. Actually, more importantly, he's not just helpless, he's hopeless. He's completely without hope. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat, and walk at once. The man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. Gospel power unleashed in a moment. 38 years of history undone. Then it says this, the day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. He healed me, so he must have the authority to command me basically. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, 
for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who made him well. So what are the characteristics of the gospel that we see here? What does this story show us about the gospel? Well, the first thing I believe is in verse 6. Jesus takes the initiative, doesn't he? When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he'd been in his condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? The first point is that Jesus turns up. Jesus turns up in this horrible place. He's there. He's in person. He's not a superstition. Jesus isn't a philosophy. Jesus isn't just a kind of a teaching. doesn't just exist in his teachings. Jesus is a person. He's not put off by the sights. He's not put off by the smells. It's personal. He's turned up. And this is the kind of love we've experienced, isn't it? We've experienced that kind of love. Jesus turned up, you know, in our mess, in our stink. He turned up and he met with us. We, don't, we didn't just follow a teaching, hear a teaching, but we've met a person. We've met the living God. We've met Jesus. We've experienced his love firsthand. And actually, you know, in terms of the gospel... In terms of the gospel, you know, are we willing to turn up in places that we might rather not go? Are we ready to introduce people to a person? Ultimately, that's the gospel, isn't it? We're introducing people to a person. Not to a religion, not to a philosophy, but to a person. But Jesus isn't just there. Jesus is proactive. He's engaged. He sees this guy. He sees him, but he doesn't just see him. He hasn't just got his eyes open. He's not just looking. He learns. He he inquires. He makes inquiries. Who is this guy? He finds out how long he's been there. And then once he does that, he he takes a step to to talk to this guy and ask him, do you want to be well? You know, Jesus is, is proactive. Jesus takes the initiative. He's the shepherd that goes out after the lost sheep, leaves the 99 and goes looking. You know, the, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, where... Um, these two guys, they, they'd been following Jesus, they were disillusioned, they were thinking Jesus has been killed, you know, killed on the cross, it's all over, that was a waste of time, wasn't it? Let's go. Um, they were walking away from the, the point of the Holy Spirit that was about to happen in Jerusalem, and Jesus intercepts them on the road to Emmaus, shows him who he is, sends them back. Jesus is proactive, he's an interceptor. He takes the initiative. Jesus is seeking and saving the lost today. And I think we forget that sometimes. Actually, Jesus is seeking and saving the lost today. We live in a a, a time where um, it's hard to to, to preach the gospel. It's hard to live the gospel. And sometimes it feels like Jesus isn't seeking and saving people anymore. But he is. Jesus is seeking and saving the lost. And actually, this should encourage us because this is an easy gospel, isn't it? Actually, this is easier than having to get to get a three-minute speech into every conversation, you know, someone you talk to on the bus. This is easier, actually. To be someone, actually, the go- living the gospel means actually just being available, having your eyes open, what's going on around me, not just tunnel vision, got to get to work, or, you know, got tunnel vision, this is what I'm doing today, but actually having your eyes open, ready to hear the ho- what the Holy Spirit's prompting you to do, ready to inquire, actually, what's happening with this person? You know, what does God want to say to this person? ready to step out and just ask questions. How long have you been here? Do you want to get well? I think there's something releasing in that for us. You know, actually we feel like I've got to give this person almost like a three-point sermon about sin and redemption and heaven. But actually, the gospel starts 
with that proactivity, taking that initiative. It's an easy gospel. The second characteristic that we see is that the gospel transforms lives. And that's the obvious point in this story, isn't it? Verse 7, the guy's helpless, completely without hope. Verse 8, Jesus speaks, and then bang. Verse 9, he's instantly healed. 38 years of suffering, transformed in an instant. The gospel transforms lives. I mean, we're, we're, you can look around the room. We're a room full of people with changed lives, aren't we? There's a room here full of uh, changed lives that, that bear testimony to that fact. Physical transformation. People that have been healed, free from pain. Emotional and mental transformation. Freed from despair, anxiety, mental illness. Social transformation. This guy, this, you know, by being healed, this guy didn't just get his physical healing. He got social healing. You know, the stigma of being, um, of being, of, of being disabled. The dependency on others. You know, begging. The shame, actually, because he lived in a culture where to be ill, to be, uh, to be disabled, um, kind of bore, bore this concept of being um, um, unloved by God or pu- being punished by God. And, and actually, spirit, spiritually, he was able, again, to kind of uh, go to the temple, whereas before he probably felt abandoned and out of reach. The gospel is pure power to change lives in every area of our lives. And it's not just self-help. You know, Jesus doesn't come with advice on how to unleash his inner power. If you just believe in yourself, if you can visualise yourself climbing into the pool, if you can neuro-linguistically programme yourself, you'll be able to reach the pool. No, the power to, to, to reach the pool isn't within him. There's an external heavenly power that's come, that's accessible. I'm glad about that. Aren't you glad about that? The gospel, aren't you glad for that external power? Have you, I mean, I, I don't know, you, I'm sure you're like me, you spent years trying to do it yourself and realising that you couldn't. The Bible says that we were dead in our sins, completely powerless. Dead person is completely powerless. I think just before Christmas, I, I don't know if you do this, but I woke up with dead arms, you know, in the night. I do that quite a lot because I like to sleep, I like to sleep with my arm under my thing. But I woke up and both of my arms were underneath me and they were completely dead. And... And I did, you don't realise how important your arms are until... And I couldn't, even, I couldn't even turn over because I was like... So I'm trying to like bounce myself over. One arm kind of hit me in the face and the other arm kind of fell out of the bed and, and you don't realise how heavy your arms are. And it kind of pulled me half out of bed. Like, and that was just dead arms. <laughs> That's just dead arms. You know, we were completely helpless. I was pretty helpless without my arms, but we were completely helpless. We were dead in our sins, Ephesians 2 tells us. Completely powerless. He provides the power. We make no contributions. The realities of heaven appearing on earth and bringing the realities of earth in line with the kingdom of heaven. That's what it's about. Bringing the realities of earth into line with the kingdom of heaven like iron filings, you know, when you run the magnet and all the iron filings suddenly line up. That's what the kingdom of God is about. It's lining up this world, lining up lives with the kingdom of heaven, the truth of heaven. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So I hope you're excited about Rob's challenge last week. We don't just want a gospel, that we don't just want to teach, we don't just want to preach, we want to see demonstrations of power. That's what we're called to. Demonstrations of power. 
signs to make us wonder. That was a prophetic word that was, that was brought at the weekend away. God's going to do signs and wonders and signs to make us wonder. Okay, third characteristic. I've got no idea what the, how we're doing for time. I think I'm time dyslexic, actually, so if that's the thing. But um, right, third characteristic. It gets to the heart of the problem. So this gospel goes straight to the heart of the problem. Verse 14 says, Later Jesus found him at the, te- at the temple and said, See, you're well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. So Jesus is saying, actually, there's a, there's a, there's a root, there's a root to your problem. There's a real problem here. And it's sin. So he's not saying, look, stop sinning or, or something worse will happen to you because God will punish you. That's not what he's saying. Because actually the culture at that time was, there was this kind of karma culture. We, we kind of have it today as well, don't you? That, you know, that actually if you do good things, God will bless you with good health. And if you do bad things, um, God will strike you down with some illness. And that's, that, that was how the Jewish people at this time understood the world. That's, what they, that's how they felt God, that's how they thought God um, operated. But actually Jesus made it clear that's not the case. There was, another, uh, uh, there was another healing where Jesus healed a man who was blind. And the, and the disciples even were kind of, this culture was in them. And they said, well, who sinned? Was it this man or was it his parents? That caused him to be blind. And Jesus said, no, neither of them. He's blind so that the glory of God could be revealed in his life. And actually, um, you know, so what Jesus isn't saying is stop sinning because otherwise God will punish you for your sin. Punishment will come later um, at the day of judgment. And maybe Jesus is referring to the corrosive effects on sin. You know, when we sin, we do ourselves harm. We do others harm. But actually, what Jesus is really saying here is actually you've got a, you've got a real problem. You thought... Your disability was your real problem. That was the thing that you needed to fix. But the truth is, the real problem in your life is your sin. The real problem in your life is your sin. Sin is a bigger problem because it's an eternal problem. What good is it, Jesus says, if you get the whole world, if you get everything you want in this world, if you win the lottery, but you lose your soul and for the rest of eternity... You're separated from God. That's what Jesus says in Mark 8. There's a bigger problem than just his physical healing. And that's because he had misdiagnosed his problem. And if you misdiagnose your problem, I'm no doctor, <laughs> so, but um, if you misdiagnose your problem, then you end up with the wrong treatment. And he thought the answer was in the pool. He thought his saviour would be someone who would come along, put him... Over their, put him over their shoulder and carry him to the pool in time. That's what he was looking for. I need a saviour, I need someone to carry me to the pool. And he was so focused on the pool, he didn't even know that the real saviour was standing next to him. The real saviour was standing right next to him and he didn't even know it because he was so focused on the pool. And we have to ask ourselves, what superstitions do we trust in? Are there things in our lives that we're, that we're, that we're fo- so focused on and actually we think, actually that's the real problem in my life. I used to think my real problem was my nose. I know you can't believe that. I know it sounds silly now. When I was a, a teenager, I used to think, you know, if my nose was a bit nicer, a bit smaller, you know, everything would, be, I would you know, people would like me more. I'd have more confidence. You know, I thought that was the answer. And I, and I, used, to, I used to dream about, about having an operation. 
So, I know it's, it's hard to believe, I know. I know it's hard to believe, but, it's, but that's, that's what I thought. I misdiagnosed my problem. And I don't know what it is for you. Maybe it's something to do with your health. If only, I was, if only I was better. If only I was healed of this health problem. If only I had a better paid job. Then I could really, you know, I could really relax. I could get stuck into church. And, uh, or maybe, you know, if I, could just, if I was just better educated. I don't know what it is for you that you think is the answer. But actually, the real problem is sin in our lives. The real saviour we need is Jesus. And actually, you might realise that for yourself. You might, you might say, yeah, I've, I've been, I know that. I know, actually, I came to that place of, you know, of needing to accept Jesus and realising that, actually, it was Jesus that I needed. But what I find is when I look at other people, and um, people I work with, people I know, and I think, really, do they really need the gospel? They're nice people. They've got a nice life. They're kind, generous. They're nice. Do they really, really, really need the gospel? Okay, they might need some help with their marriage. or But do they really, really, really need the gospel? And yes, brothers and sisters, that's the lie we have to be, 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 be wary of. You know, the, the devil wants us to, to forget that actually people need Jesus. Sin is a disease. It's a disease. And everything can look great on the outside, but people need, they, people need salvation. They need their sins forgiven. So we see in verse 16 that um, the gospel, this gospel transformation, this guy, he receives his healing, there's gospel transformation, but in verse 16 we see that then that there's persecution that comes. Uh, verse 16 says this, it says, So, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defence, Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work. To this very day, I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave him this answer. Truly, uh, very truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son does also. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. So we see Jesus being persecuted for his act of love, his act of kindness, and Jesus defending himself uh, before his accusers. An offence actually is quite topical, isn't it, this week? You know, with the, 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 the Charlie Hebdo uh, uh, massacre and um, all of the conversation that's come out of that in terms of, you know, do we have the right to offend people? Um, or do we have a responsibility to, to not, um, you know, uh, should we be afraid of the reaction, the intimidation? So, I mean, this is, this is quite, a, this is, we, we understand this idea of offence, don't we? Especially religious offence in our day and age. It's not, it's not a, an alien concept to us. And whatever you think about that, um, what we see here is that the religious leaders are, are offended by what Jesus has done. They're offended by the man, they're offended by the man's freedom. This guy's carrying his mat on the Sabbath. They're offended by that. In fact, maybe they're even jealous. They're jealous of his freedom. They're not allowed to carry things on the Sabbath. Why should he? Why should he get away with it? And actually, one of the, one of the, one of the effects of the gospel is that people will be offended, offended by our freedom. Sometimes we're offended by other people's freedom as well, aren't we? Um, I had a friend 
in church who always criticised contributions on a Sunday. You know, whatever people brought on a Sunday, words of knowledge, uh, scriptures, prayers, he would, he would, he would criticise them. He would always find something wrong, something niggly, something wrong about them. And, um, and this used to affect me. I used to, wanna, I used to hold back on what I would say and what I would do because, you know, there's this kind of sense of criticism and, 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 that, and that creates a fear in us. Until I realised that this person never actually contributed. Do you know what I mean? They never actually got up and contributed. They never got up and shared. They never, they never got up and encouraged. And then you realise, actually, actually, maybe there was a, actually a hint of jealousy or something in this person that was causing them to act like that, to be un- ungracious in that sense. And actually, we need to not be limited by, by that, by their jealousy, by their criticism. And that's why at Jubilee we always celebrate courage, don't we? We celebrate courage. When people come and they, they, they come up and they share something, you know, we encourage them. We celebrate courage because quite often we misinterpret success, what we think is successful. So that's dangerous. We celebrate the courage um, that people show. The second thing that offended these religious guys was that Jesus broke their rules. They said, the law forbids you to carry your mat. But actually, the law didn't forbid them. It was their interpretation of the rules that that forbid them. It was their rule book. They were the self-appointed morality police. And they decided that they were going to prosecute Jesus. The word persecute in verse 16 actually can be better translated as prosecute. It's a legal word. They prosecuted him. These were the religious leaders. They should have understood Jesus, who Jesus was. Um, but they didn't. And, you know, we have to be careful ourselves, don't we? That we don't, have, we don't create our own rule book for Jubilee Church. Yeah? We don't create our own rule book. Things that we, that, you know, things that we think people can and can't do. Or who can do them. Or when they can do them. We have to be completely open to the Spirit because those rules close down uh, the Holy Spirit and what he can do amongst us. And uh, this came home to me for, for myself. So like smoking, you know, if someone, you know, if, if, if someone who smoked was, a, was preaching, you might think, well, I'm not sure they should be allowed to preach if they're, if they're a smoker, if they're, you know, there's an addiction issue, um, you know, it's maybe a sign of uh, moral laxity. But actually, God really spoke to me because... Um, I know I don't look like it now, but I, I've lost a few stone in the last few years. And the, reason, and the way it happened wasn't just, um, you know, I thought I need to get fit. Actually, God put his finger on something, gluttony in my life, and said, you know what, there's a lack of self-control here. Do you know what I mean? It's easy to look at other people and think, oh, there's a lack of self-control in you. But actually, you know, eating too many cakes is just as bad as smoking, isn't it? So it was an addiction, and it was, harmful. it was harmful to my body. And actually, smoking isn't mentioned in one of the seven deadly sins, but gluttony is. And, God, and it was actually conviction of sin that led me to change my lifestyle. And I'm not, I'm not having a go at anyone, because it's about what God says to you and what God's calling you to. But what I'm trying to point out is that we can, do, we can easily decide the rules. If someone's a smoker, they can't do this. If someone does this, they can't do that. Actually, you know, we need to hear God for ourselves. We don't decide the rules. Um, and actually, if we're getting offended, riled by other people, annoyed by other people, we have to ask ourselves, what's going on now? 
is, 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 there something, is there something genuine I need to go to them with? Or actually, is it this person's breaking my sense of what the rules should be? And then and they become offended with... Um, they're, ultimately, they're offended. These guys are offended with Jesus' claim to be God. Aren't they? That's, what, that's when they really, they really get upset. It's when he calls God his father and makes himself equal with God. That's when they get really, really upset. And actually, today in society, we find this, don't we? You can talk about God all day long. But as soon as you start talking about Jesus, it starts to, uh, it starts to, it starts to annoy people. People start to take offence. But the Bible tells us that salvation is found in no one else. There is no, under, no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved in Acts. And at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow one day. Every tongue confess that he is Lord. Jesus is central to the gospel. Jesus is central to the gospel. Jesus is the only way. There's no other name that's been given. And that is a hard message to take out, isn't it, in today's society. And that will upset people. The enemy's happy for us to skirt around the edges. But as we step out, we will face increasing opposition. Embarrassment, persecution, even prosecution. Maybe you feel, maybe you're experiencing persecution at the moment. Maybe it's persecution, a few jibes. Maybe you feel prosecuted though, like Jesus. You know, it's not just people are having a go at me. You know, people are out to get me. People really, really don't like me. Have you ever been in that situation because I'm a Christian? And they're out to get me. They're out to prosecute me. They're out to bring me down. But Jesus is courageous. The gospel is courageous. That's what we see. Jesus doesn't hold back. He doesn't hold back. He's, he's, He's courageous. He steps out. He risks his reputation. He risks prosecution. Was that just divine kind of immunity? Was Jesus just, oh, well, he's God. Of course he's going to step out and do it. Or, actually, was there something more? You know, what, what, what empowered Jesus to step out? Because I don't, think, I, I don't think it was just because he was God. You know, when Jesus was standing before the Sanhedrin and, you know, on the, on the, the night before he was crucified, and he knows, actually, if this trial, you know, this, this is the trial for his life, you know, this is the trial that's going to lead him to the cross. And they ask him, are you the Messiah, the Son of God, the Holy One of God? And he knows, if I say yes, if I tell the truth, it's the cross. If I say no, they'll be happy, I could probably go home. Do you know what I mean? That's a, that, that, I, Jesus had courage. Jesus didn't just float through life because he was the Son of God, he had courage. And he said yes, he, takes, he took courageous decisions. And we see in this story that, that for two reasons, actually, two things that, that, that he, he highlights. The first is that he knows his true identity. And you might say, well, Steve, at Jubilee, you're always going on about identity. But identity, knowing your identity, is essential. In verse 17, he says, my father is always working. And in those days, if you, you know, you, you, what your dad did for a job, it, it kind of, it, got, it, it dictated what you did for your job. It dictated what your family did. It dictated the rest of your life. You know, there was no careers advisor. Or if there was a careers advisor at school, you know, you go, you know, they didn't say, um, you know, what, what, you know, what do you enjoy doing? They say, well, what does your dad do? Well, my dad's the baker. 
right, you're a baker. Do you know what I mean? That's how it worked. I, 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 did you ever t- I took a computer test at school to find out what I should be, and it said I should be a, a veterinary nurse. But I don't know why. I, st- I still don't understand how it c- came to that conclusion. But it's not, that wasn't career, career, career advice I followed. But there's, you know, there's no careers advisor. You know, if your dad was the baker, you were the baker. If your dad was a carpenter, like Jesus' dad, you were going to be a carpenter. So, but Jesus says here, my father is always working. He's saying, I'm learning my father's trade. I'm doing my father's trade. I'm in the family profession. He's, he knows who his identity is. His identity isn't in the fact that it isn't in his dad who's a carpenter. It's his dad who is the creator of the universe. And in fact, when they attacked Jesus, that's what they said to him. They said, this is the carpenter. We know this guy. He's the carpenter's son. He's the carpenter's son. He is just a carpenter. And Jesus is saying here, no, I'm not just a carpenter. I'm a son of God. I'm part of the family business. I'm following the family profession. Whatever the father does, the son also does. There's, there's, it's not just, you know, he's compelled to uh, do what his father does. Our father in heaven, is in the business of healing. He's in the business of changing lives, isn't he? He's in the business of changing destinies. He doesn't just change lives, he changes destinies, people's eternal destinies. And maybe you're letting people limit you. Oh, so-and-so, John, the carpenter's son. He's just, he's, just, he's just the carpenter's son. Actually, no. Don't let people limit you. Go back to making chairs, John. No. You're the son of God. And uh, you're called to bring the gospel into the lives of others. The second uh, place of courage that, that, that we see in, is in verse 20. The father loves the son. Jesus says, verse 20, for the father loves the son and shows him all he does. And actually, ultimately, you can't go wrong, can you? You can't go wrong. If you know God loves you, if you know your heavenly Father loves you, you can't go wrong. You can get it wrong. You might get it wrong, but you can't go wrong. You can't go wrong if you know the Father loves you, even if you mess it up. There's security there. Despite what others think about you, there's security there. Despite what others say about you, there's incredible security that comes from knowing your Father in heaven loves you. And you say, well, I'd like some courage, but actually I just need a bit of confidence to start with. I'll, st- I'll have a bit of confidence, please. Um, courage might come later. But doesn't that give you confidence to know the Father, the he- your Heavenly Father loves you? You know, as it was, said, it was said today, not guilty. You're not guilty. He loves you completely. I know I was, I was crippled. I was disabled by my insecurity. But it was a revelation of the Father's love that changed my life. You might think, well, it's easy for people, you know, Rob, Simon, standing up here. Actually, it's not easy. There's a, there's a revelation of the Father's love that changes our lives and, and, and um, uh, heals us from that kind of paralysis that comes from that insecurity. But it's more than this, though. 
The Father's love is not just for me. It doesn't just give me confidence. It doesn't just give me courage. The Father's love is it's irrepressible. The Father's love is um, it's a love that puts up a fight, isn't it? it? The Father's love puts up a fight for us. John 3.16, you know, famous verse. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Do you know what I mean? We, we can become so familiar with that. Actually, he, he gave his only son. He, he, he said, do you know what? I'm not having it. I'm not having it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to intervene. I'm going to send my only son because I love the world. Because I love the world. That, that, that's the kind of love that the father has. It's a love that puts up a fight. You know, the cross wasn't just the ultimate demonstration of, of love. It was an ultimate demonstration of love, but it wasn't just the ultimate demonstration of love. It was a battle place, wasn't it? Actually, Colossians tell us, tell, tells us that. Colossians 2. That at the cross, powers, dark forces were defeated, were humiliated. It was a battle place. God's love is a fighting love. It's an irrepressible love. I don't know if you've ever seen a film called True Romance. I'm not recommending it if you're of a, of a, of a slightly... Uh, uh, yeah. Look at the rating and, and make your own decision. But, but actually, there's a film that's, that, uh, that's kind of central story to this film, True Romance, is that there's a guy and he falls in love with a cool girl, uh, like an escort girl. And um, they fall in love and they get married. But this causes them a problem because there's all kinds of criminals and pimps who think that this woman belongs to them. Yeah? And this guy is not going to take no for an answer. He basically, he's going to fight for this woman that he loves. And he's going to set, he's going to get her free from these pimps and these criminals. And you might say, well, Steve, you can't do that. You can't, you can't compare God's love to the love of someone, you know, who, who's in love with a, with a, a prostitute. Well, you haven't read Hosea then, have you? Do you know what I mean? Because that's exactly what it's like. It's exactly what it's like. And actually, there's a fighting love there. There's a love that won't take no for an answer. And so we've experienced that love, but actually, that's, a lo- that's the love that's working through us, isn't it? That's the love that should compel us. Becky Webb spoke a few months ago about being compelled by love. It's the love, that's the love that compels us. It's a love that won't take no for an answer. It's a love that's going to go out and put up a fight for people because it loves people, because it wants to see incredible breakthrough in people's lives. It wants to see changed lives, but more than that, it wants to see changed destinies. Eternal destinies reset. And I pray that we're a church of bruisers. Yeah? I pray that we're a church of bruisers. You know, Church for people with a few scars, a few cauliflower ears, you know, in the, in the spiritual. Actually, we'll go out and we'll put up a fight for people out there who don't know Jesus, who don't know what he's done for them, who don't know where they're heading. So, wrapping up. Are you ready for a gospel season? Scary, isn't it? A gospel season. A season to, to actually... Uh, kind of regroup and go out again, lead another charge at the enemy, take the gospel out to the people around us. Are you convinced that the gospel is really needed? Do you know actually that actually people have a real problem, a real disease? They really need Jesus. They really, really, really need Jesus. Yes, they're nice. Yes, they might have a nice life on the sur- surface of it, but they still need Jesus. They still need eternal salvation.
Does that scare you? It scares me. It scares me. Do you, do you need a fresh revelation of he, your heavenly identity, identity that brings that sense of heavenly purpose? And that love, a fresh revelation of that love that won't take no for an answer, that's going to compel us out. I do. Maybe you need some life-changing power this morning. It's afternoon now, this afternoon. Maybe you need some life-changing power. Maybe there's something in your life that you, know, you need some healing or you need something to change. Maybe you've been looking in the wrong place for a saviour when he's standing right next to you all along. Maybe you need to know who you really are. Maybe you just need a fresh experience of God's love.